morning again. I miss you guys. Hopefully. Thank you. That was not very. Thank you. I, I uh, was thinking about it and being away from here, unfortunately, um, providentially, um, I was able to, to listen in, but it's not the same. And I was thinking about, and you know, the saying absence makes the heart grow fonder. And it, it certainly reminds us of what we miss. Um, but I'm glad to be here this morning. And, and I want you to know that I am here willingly, not out of compulsion. It is a delight to be here, to be fellowshipping with the family of God. And we're in continuing our study in the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter eight this morning. And I want to uh, take a step back and just look at the big picture of where we are since we've had a little bit of time away from our study in the book of Revelation. I want to remind you of the themes that we've been seeing and that we have studied so far. Chapter one, we have an introduction from um, John, and it's a letter to the embattled church. John introduces himself as a partner in tribulation to the seven churches, who are seven literal churches. And the emphasis of Revelation chapter one is that the church is changing its perspective on the Lord Jesus Christ, not in in reshaping the gospel in any way, shape, or form, but they had seen the Lord Jesus as Savior, as prophet. But what Revelation does for us as we view the Savior is we see him as king. And so the introduction in Revelation chapter 1 is showing Jesus in his kingliness, his royal leadership of the church. And then we go into chapters one through three, which are the, the, the letters to the seven churches, reminding us that we belong to the king. And because we belong to the king, he has purchased us with his blood. We are his purchased possession. He owns us. And with that ownership comes the responsibility, the obligations, the demands, the duties that Christ imposes lovingly upon his church. What were these obligations and responsibilities that we studied as we went through the first three chapters? Well, the charge to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to hear him. The promise of the book of Revelation is that those who hear will be blessed by it. It is not this book of of clouded secrets to the church, but it is a book of promised blessing to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as they read it, as they hear it, as they listen and apply it. And so the charge to the church was to be faithful, to, to love him, to repent, to conquer, to patiently endure tribulation, to remember, to hold fast, to be unsoiled, to receive chastening as sons, for children, to see ourselves honestly without pride and arrogance. And the admonition of revelation begins with the church. And if Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, 
for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Chapter four, we move into a heavenly scene of the throne room where John is invited to come up and we're taken into the throne room, the the heavenly control tower, if you will, to shift our perspective, to understand how God is seeing redemptive history. We have our human view, and then we have how God sees things. And the encouragement to the church is to take your view from a human standpoint and shift it, see things from God's perspective. We're immediately shown the preeminent role of the throne in ordering and carrying out redemptive history. And John is being shown, and by extension, the church, that God rules on his throne now. He rules now. That is of incredible importance for the church to understand. We are not carried about on the sea, the high sea of tribulation, without guidance, without shepherding, without the providential hand of God on our lives. We're not just um, floating on the breeze, if you will. God is sovereignly ruling from the throne and ordering all things for the good of his church and the good of his people. We see the central theme, while there is tribulation here on earth, and, and he's writing to the seven churches who are embattled in real time, what's going on in heaven? The central theme in heaven before and around the throne is what? Worship. God is primarily concerned with his glory and the worship of himself through his people. There's a heavy emphasis of that. And and that worship takes us into chapter five. And we see the throne room shifts from worship of the creator to the redeemer. Revelation 4.10, by the way, says they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The right of ownership of the creator is exemplified in Revelation chapter 4, and then it shifts to the role of the Redeemer. The scene in the throne room shifts. We see an introduction of the Lamb. And the sealed scroll, and we find John lamenting the fact that there was no one seen in heaven or on earth that could open the scroll. And the elders, one of the elders said to John, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll. The scroll is sealed with seven seals, and there's only one who is able and worthy to open it, and it is the Redeemer, the Lamb. In this, we are reminded that all of history is redemptive history, and all of redemptive history is about the Lamb. That's the theme of Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5 verse 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. In chapter 6, we begin to see the Lamb opening the sealed scroll. 
And the first picture that we see is the four horsemen in the opening of the first four seals. And this directly correlates with what Jesus teaches in Matthew 24. These are the beginning of birth pains. The fifth seal is opened and the prayer of the saints for the righteous judge to return and vindicate them is on full display. In their sanctified understanding, they're asking for the return of the righteous judge. And then in the sixth seal, we get a glimpse, a picture of the great day of wrath. And then chapter seven, something very interesting happens. After the announcement of the sixth seal and the great day of the wrath of Almighty God, we see a pause. And this is the interlude we talked about. And as part of the opening of the seven seals, we seal, we see the sealing of the church. It's incredibly important, and it's a timely reminder that God will preserve his people in the midst of judgment leading up to the final judgment. And remember, this does not mean that we are free from pain. Does not mean we are free from suffering. Does not mean we are free from tribulation. And the reminder of the apostles as they saw new converts in in the book of Acts, as they reminded those those, uh, new disciples that they, through much tribulation, would enter into the kingdom of God. They did not mislead them, mischaracterize the Christian life. Is something that would be easy for them. In fact, the opposite. But in this gracious interlude, we see that the church, the people of God, are sovereignly kept and protected and sealed in the midst of tribulation. And we talked about the sealing that he's talking about here. What are we what are we referring to when we talk about the fact that scripture records for us that they are to seal the servants of God. Well, we interpret scripture with scripture. Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were, what? Sealed for the day of redemption. Revelation 7 is a is an interlude of encouragement for the embattled church. And we, we looked at the fact that regardless of your nationality, regardless of your ethnicity, if you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, you are included in the people of God. And Revelation 7 ends with this encouraging reminder for the Lamb In the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Jesus reminds us in regard to his sheep. In John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. It is incredibly important to remember that as a child of God, you will not be forgotten. He will not lose one of his sheep, not one. In John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd, verse 14. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. 
And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Slide number two is a reminder of where we are in our study. And if you look there, we're, we're entering the, the seven trumpets in the seven cycles outline that we have for the book of Revelation. And I want you to see, if Jesse, if you'll go to the next slide, there are... Um, the meat of the book of Revelation is going to keep us here from chapter 8 all the way through chapter 20. We're th- we'll see three themes. And we looked at the seven seals. We're moving into in chapter 8, the seven trumpets. And then in chapter 14, the seven bowls or vials. And, and I want you to think about that for just a second. The first, the first of the, the seven seals <clears throat> is a reminder for the church and an encouragement to the church that in the judgment of God, the church is kept. And there are three scenes of judgment that we see here. Each is given a different view, but, but I believe it's talking about the same thing, but there is a progression that we will see as we study. The seven seals talk about the sealing of the saints of God, the seven trumpets seals preserve. What do trumpets do? Proclaim. They proclaim and they warn. The, the picture of the seven trumpets that we will see is a warning to the unconverted. Now, why is the seven seals so important in regard to the church? Because what is the church's role? Who does the proclamation of the gospel? What is God ordained for the church to do? We're here to sit on our hands and to wait until he returns. No. The role of the church is to proclaim and to warn. And what is that proclamation and the warning if it is not the preaching and the teaching of God's word? It's important to know that when you teach and preach God's word, there will be ramifications. So what enforces or empowers us to go with boldness into the world, into our families, into our culture, and proclaim the truth of God's word. Because I know that I'm sealed. And I can be mistreated and abused and everything up to martyred. And I'm untouchable as a child of God. That is an incredibly important truth that must anchor our souls because God has called us to trumpet his word and his truth. In Revelation chapter 22, regarding the seven bowls, and we talk about the cup of wrath that the Lord Jesus drank. The picture of the seven bowls is the picture of the final judgment of God in which it's done. It's poured out. In Revelation 22, verse 10, he said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evil let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. What is he saying? Well, there is a time in redemptive history when there is no more room for repentance. There is a time in which there is no space any longer given to repent. And when that time comes, it will be final. It will be done. 
And he says in verse 11 or verse 12, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God is gracious enough to warn this world that he is coming back to judge this world. And it is the the duty and work of the church to warn the world to repent. Jonathan Edwards contrasts the lion and the lamb seen here in the book of Revelation. And he says this, and yet he, Jesus, will at the same time appear as a lamb to his saints. He will receive them as friends and brethren, treating them with infinite mildness and love. There shall be nothing in him terrible to them. What is there that you can desire that should be in a savior that is not in Christ? What excellency is there lacking? What is there that is great or good? What is there that is venerable or winning? What is there that is adorable or endearing? Or what can you think of that would be encouraging, which is not to be found in the person of Christ? As a lion, he says this, he will then appear in the most dreadful and amazing manner to the wicked. The devils tremble at the thought of that appearance and when it shall be, the kings and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man shall hide themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and shall cry to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the face and wrath of the Lamb. And none can declare or conceive of the amazing manifestations of wrath in which he will then appear to dip toward these, or the trembling and astonishment, the shrieking and the gnashing of teeth with which they shall stand before his judgment seat and receive the terrible sentence of wrath. For the child of God, he is the lamb. For the wicked, the unbelieving, the unrepentant, he'll come as a lion. This brings us to our text this morning in Revelation chapter 8. There are three points. Um, Number one, there's verse one, a powerful pause, moving petitions in verses two through four, and then answered prayer in verse five. Verse one, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Some commentators have looked at the opening of the seventh seal as a transition to the announcement of the seven trumpets. But but I think what's what's really in view here is that the opening of the seventh seal is just that. It is silence in heaven. And this is yet again God in his graciousness encouraging the church. And I hope to show that to you this morning as we study this. But what have we seen up to this point in the heavenly throne room? Well, Revelation 7, when we see the gathering of the elect, the the great multitude that no man could number in verse 9, from every nation, all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, that is the righteousness of Christ, with palm branches in their hands. And what were they doing? Scripture says they were crying out with a loud voice. They were worshiping God with without restraint. And what were they singing? 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So in the heavenly throne room, we see the worship of God as creator and Christ as redeemer. And then silence. I've never heard a million people sing together. And the scripture doesn't give us a number here. It's it's beyond. It's a multitude. The scripture says that no man can number. Can you imagine a multitude of people singing and worshiping to God and then nothing, silence? There are three considerations to ponder that I want to bring out. And I think this pause is to reflect on what we have seen and then give us anticipation for what we're about to see. But just as the psalmist would write, Sila, think on these things, meditate on these things. Here is a pause. What have we just seen in the throne room of heaven? And what are we about to be introduced to? There is biblical precedent to the fact that guilty creation will be silent before the Lord on the day of his great return. When God judges this world, he will do so by the perfect standard of his law. And you remember in in Exodus chapter 19, the inauguration of the written law of God was accompanied by what? Anybody remember? Trumpets, thunder, lightning, as Moses approached Mount Sinai. In Romans chapter 3, Paul reminds us that the purpose of the law, never to justify us, but what does the law do? He begins uh, uh, Romans chapter 3 with the question, what advantage does the Jew have? And he answers that question in in Romans 3, much advantage because it was then that the, the word of God was given to and entrusted to. They had the advantage of scripture. But he says in verse 9, what then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then in verse 19, he says this, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That is the condemnation of it. So that every mouth, what, may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. At the return of the righteous judge, there will not be arguing and debating about an individual's status of righteousness. It will be so profoundly evident when the holy God of all the universe reveals himself in his nature and his character that every mouth will be stopped. There will be no stuttering, no excuse making. Because he will bring to bear the righteous standard that he will judge this world by, and it is is his law. 
So I'd ask you this, what advantage do you have? Are you well-churched? Are you religious? If you're a young person here, are your parents believers? Are you well-taught in the scriptures? Are you by human standards righteous? Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You may have all sorts of fleshly advantages, but unless you've been born again of the spirit of God, you're dead in trespasses and sins. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see and he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Our fleshly advantages are of no value. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. This gives us a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb, doesn't it? Those who are arrayed in wedding garments. And he continues in verse 8 of Zephaniah chapter 1. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, quote, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. All those who have every visible advantage, he says, I will punish because they're arrayed in foreign attire. What is that foreign attire? Their own righteousness. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. What is he talking about? Well, this is a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you presume to sit at the table of God in your own rags and filthiness? That's what he's saying. You have no right to step over the threshold of my house if you have not been properly attired. And if you have been properly attired, you are welcome at the table. You're no beggar begging crumbs. That's one potential aspect of this silence, this picture that we see. But this is silence in heaven. Secondly, there is a stark contrast between the silence and the near blasting of the trumpets that we're about to study. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 6, which Lord willing, we will look at next week, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Joel chapter 2, verse 1 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. It is vitally important for the church to be established in the reality and grounded in the truth that we are sealed and and protected so that we can proceed with assurance and confidence in the mission that God has given to us. The trumpets of warning are the ministry of the church. The preaching of the gospel is the warning of sinners to repent. And God has not called us to bow our knees to the altar of winsomeness. 
I was reminded again of, of Jesus's words in Luke chapter 13. And in our culture, in our context, if you read this, there's nothing politically correct about what he says. But I want you to see something that the truth that he speaks could not be more loving. In Luke 13, verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Pilate murdered these Galileans. And these are people who are bringing the news of the day to Jesus. Here's a great crime that was perpetrated by Pilate. What did they want? They wanted Jesus to speak out against Pilate, right? Because the expectation at the time of Jesus was that he would be their rescuer from Rome. But his kingdom was not from here. Verse 2, he answers them. He said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Doesn't sound very loving at the onset, does it? But what does Jesus do? He takes what we see in this life as catastrophe, and he turns it and reminds those who witness these catastrophes that the purpose of these things is to warn us, and that God, in sparing us, is graciously giving us room and space to repent. And he uses that very opportunity to warn the witnesses of that catastrophe that unless you repent, you will be the same. Or he said, verse four, the 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. You think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's a pastor in Canada arrested this week. I don't know if you saw that. He had the audacity to show up at his local library where there was a, uh, drag queen story hour. And he warned the participants there, you must repent. And he was thrown out and arrested. And there are some that would look at him and say, how unloving, how unwelcoming. And we have the example of our Lord here who warns of the dangers and the perils of sin. God has not called us to be nice. I'm not saying that we go around offending people and browbeating people. That's not what I'm saying. Hear me out. The cult of personality is not going to convert sinners because the unrepentant sinner sees the gospel as what? Foolishness. The preaching of the cross to them that perish is what? Foolishness. They don't want it. The natural man receives not the things of the spirit of God. So what will the natural man say to you about the message of the cross? It's hate. You're not being nice. There's nothing more loving that we can do to warn than to warn people of the peril of sin. Especially those of us who have been rescued from the brink of hell from our own sin.
We cannot let our culture define what love is. Scripture does that. The silence in heaven, the third, the third view of this, and this is, I think, the correct one. But the silence in heaven is intended to emphasize the importance of the prayers of the saints. And that the wait is short. The scripture uses, and it's, it says the same thing in the Greek as it's translated in the English. It's a brief 30 minutes. But it is a pregnant pause. and. Robert Godfrey, in his messages on the book of Revelation, I highly recommend them. They're excellent. But he he illustrates the waiting room at the doctor's. Have you ever gone to the doctor's office? And I'm sure all of you can think of examples. And you're sitting in the waiting room, and it feels like an eternity while you wait for the doctor or the surgeon to come out and give you the news, good or bad. I remember with our little man, Nolan, when he burned his hands. Thankfully, he doesn't remember that. But we waited in the waiting room, and it seemed like an eternity while the doctor came out to tell us how it went. And we went in to see him with his little hands bandaged up. The reality was, though, it was only a few minutes. And, and the picture here that I think scripture is giving to us is the church is anxious and waiting on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it seems like it's taking forever. But what he's telling us is that when he comes back, we will look back with our sanctified understanding and know it was just like that. Because the scripture tells us his return is imminent. Is it, is it lying? Well, Peter answers that and reminds us. We'll get to that in just a second. I, I want you to see um, point number two. Our moving petitions. This is a picture that is so incredibly gracious of God. He says, I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense. The word incense there is the word fragrant aroma. And notice it says this twice. And when scripture repeats something, it wants us to get it. And he was given much incense or fragrant aroma to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angels. So in this space of silence, what are we seeing? We're seeing the offering of the prayers of the saints mingled with a fragrant aroma. What is, what is the picture here? I want you to see, yeah, it's absolutely a picture from the temple. I want you to see that the suffering of the saints and their cry for help and their cry for relief matters. It matters greatly. The altar, the picture of the altar here takes us back to the fifth seal. Remember, 
the souls under the altar, they were asking the, the question of how long? How long, Lord, before you vindicate us and avenge us? Revelation 6, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice of sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And remember, scripture differentiates as we, if you do a study through the book of Revelation, everyone mentioned as an earth dweller. Those who dwell on the earth are the picture of the unbelieving. Verse 11, they were each given a white robe and told to rest. How long? Just a little longer. And why? Why were they told that they needed to wait just a little longer? Well, this is not God dilly-dallying or delaying. They were told to rest a little bit longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So the question is, why is God seeming to delay his return? Why? Well, Peter answers that in 2 Peter chapter 3. And he says, this is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. So let's establish the context. This is a passage that universalists love to twist and warp. But this epistle is written to the beloved. And he says in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards who? You not wishing that any should perish. What did Jesus say? All that the Father has given me will come. I will lose none of them. He says, not wishing that any should perish. Who are the any here he's talking to? The beloved. He said, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing or wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why does the Lord delay his return? It's not a delay, but there are other sheep he must bring to the fold. And so he, he, he's reminding the saints under the altar. The picture there is they're ready to see justice brought to bear by the lamb. And he says, I am holding back my return and my judgment until I finish my redemptive mission. What is this incense that we see, this fragrant aroma? Again, the Lord condescending to our own human understanding. The Lord, the Lord is a spirit. Does he have a nose? This is not a trick question. The idea of fragrant aroma appears a great deal in Scripture. Here's a question for you, a deep theological question. What smells good to God? What smells good to God? You know, the Bible has much to say about that. Forty times in the Old Testament, in every one of those occasions where it talks about something that smells sweet and is pleasing to God are all related specifically to what? Sacrifice. 
we 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 uh, studied when we started the church. How long ago was that now? 2013. 2013. We started in Genesis, and we are already into uh, First Kings. Thank you. Brain's not working well. And verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And one of the overwhelming themes as you study it line by line is Jesus is seen on every page of the Old Testament. And in the Levitical laws, the sacrificial system, what what screams at you when you study, as we talked about this morning, the whole counsel of God is Jesus. What pleases the Father? His Son. In Numbers 28.8, it says, The other lamb you shall offer at twilight like the grain offering of the morning, and like its drink offering you shall offer it as a food offering. Listen with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says this, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Listen to this, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. What is this fragrant aroma that we see offered? And you see the preposition with the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints on the altar are not by themselves, are they? The scripture is very clear that this pleasing aroma accompanies the prayers of the saints. What is it? It is none other than the mediating work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the aroma of Christ to God. When when the father said of his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Guess what? If you and I are in Christ, he is well pleased (laughs) with us because of Christ. What smells good to God? Jesus smells good to the Father. Again, this is a picture for our human understanding. Our sense of smell is powerful, isn't it? You can you can smell something that you haven't smelled in a long time, and it can take you back years, can't you? Can it? I can ask you what Christmas smells like, and you can immediately picture it in your mind. You can smell it. Or what does Thanksgiving dinner smell like? Or what does the favorite meal that your mom cooked, what does that smell like? And immediately takes you back. Conversely, on the way to church this morning, we drove past a skunk dead on the road. (laughs) What did that smell like? Smell is a powerful sense. Jesus, this is the picture here. Jesus makes us smell good. That's all that's being communicated here. The prayers of the saints to the Father are pleasing. Get this. If you get nothing else this morning, I want you to hear this. The prayers of the saints are pleasing to the Father because they are accompanied by the pleasing savor or smell of the sun. 
Psalm 141, verse 2 says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifice. What causes the prayer of the psalmist to be counted as incense to the Father? The redeeming work of the Son. It's why, it's why scripture says in Proverbs 15, 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Why? Because you know what stinks to high heaven? Sin. Scripture says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The word dead in the Greek is the word necros. It's, it's the smell of a stinking, rotting corpse. There's nothing worse than the smell of something dead. And, and Scripture paints the picture of our sinfulness in light of a rotting corpse. Say so that's not very attractive. No, it's not. It's meant to turn our stomach because that is what sin smells like to God. So when the wicked bring their sacrifice, let's use the example of Cain. When the wicked bring their sacrifice, what does God smell? Their sin. When Abel brought his sacrifice, what did God smell? The sweet smell of the sun. Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Jonathan Edwards regarding prayer said this, with respect to God, prayer is but a sensible acknowledgement of our dependence on him to his glory. As he hath made all things for his own glory, so will he be glorified and, and acknowledged by his creatures. And it is fit that he should require this of those who would be subjects of his mercy. It is suitable acknowledgement of our dependence on the power and mercy of God for that which we need, and but a suitable honor paid to the great author and fountain of all good. With respect to ourselves, God requires prayer of us. Fervent prayer, in many ways, tends to prepare the heart, hereby is excited a sense of our need. What is God telling the church as he writes this letter to them? You need me, and I am pleased to be all that you need. Our prayer to God may excite us in a suitable sense and consideration of our dependence on God for the mercy we ask and a suitable exercise of faith in God's sufficiency so that we may be prepared to glorify his name when his mercy is received. This text shows us that we are to pray for vindication, divine justice, and their soon return of Christ, knowing that this is the will of the Father. It is right and proper to to pray for that which the Father is pleased to will. Now, here is the million-dollar question, at least in my mind. How do I know that I am praying in the will of God? You ever ask yourself that question? How do I know I am praying in the will of God? Well, God has a revealed will and he has a secret will. And the problem is is far too often we are more worried about his secret will than we are his declared will, his revealed will. What do I mean by that? What did the disciples continue to ask Jesus time and time again? Lord, when are you coming back? What What did the Lord tell him? It's none of your business. Don't ask me for things that are not for you to know. 
But the problem is we neglect the things that are for us to know in terms of prayer. In prayer, we should pursue the revealed will of God. We can pray in the perfect will of God. How do we do that? Ephesians 5.15 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Romans 8 reminds us that we pray not as we ought to. Why? Why do we not pray as we ought to? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness or our infirmities, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I want to give you briefly, and I know time is short, so I'm going to be brief with this. I want to give you 13 prayer requests to encourage you this morning to pray in the will of God. If you're writing, probably not a good idea because I'll go quick, but I will share this if anybody wants it after. 13 things, and this is not exhaustive, but 13 prayer requests that we can pray with absolute assurance that we are doing so in the will of God. First of all, Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We can pray to know the will of God. And how are we to know the will of God if we are not to know the scripture? We ought to pray that we will know, study the word of God so that we know his will. How about our growth in sanctification? 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God. Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. Read an article the other day where somebody said, you can't know the will of God. You've got to find that out yourself. Well, how do you do that? We have to look inwardly. Nonsense. This is the will of God for your life, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That is God's declared will for us. It's not in doubt. So what do we do? We ask him to help us to grow in our sanctification. Second Thessalonians 1.11. To this end, we always pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, your sanctification. How about this, that we would be thankful in all circumstances? First Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances for what? This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You're like, I don't want to pray for that. That's our problem. It is the declared will of God. It's not a will of God problem. It's a subjection problem on my part. That we would be thankful in all circumstances. How about that we would faithfully endure? Is God willed that his people will endure? Better believe it. Hebrews 10.36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. 2 Peter 1.10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never 
fall. Do you think, church family, do you think God wants you to be sure of your salvation? Anybody want to say amen to that? Yes. He absolutely wants you to be sure of your salvation. How about we pray for that? Lord, strengthen my assurance. Because you know what the enemy wants to do? He wants you to doubt it. He wants you to live like you doubt it. Number five, that we would be a genuine witness. First Peter 2.15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. God wants you to be a genuine witness. We can ask for help with that. Number six, that we would think like Jesus. First Peter 4, 1, 2, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Have you prayed to think like Jesus does? Number seven, this one's hard. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a tough one. But guess what? It's the will of God for his people that we would pray that God would transform our enemies because you know what? God has transformed his enemies and we're one of them. Number eight, for the proclamation and propagation of the gospel. Matthew chapter nine, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord and of of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Colossians 4.3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Is it right and proper in the will of God to pray that the preaching of the gospel will go forth and accomplish all that God has intended for? Yes, we can pray that and be perfectly in the will of God. Number nine. Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Is it proper to pray and ask God to keep me from temptation and to resist temptation? It is absolutely proper to do that. How about growth in the word? Colossians 1, 1, 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Pray for the growth of the church, not numerically, but spiritually. God takes care of the numbers. How about when we're under affliction? James chapter 5. Mark will eventually get there. James chapter 5. Verse 13, is any among you suffering? Wait a minute, Christians don't suffer. This doesn't apply. What does it say? Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. We are perfectly in the will of God to pray when we are under affliction and suffering. In fact, it's the safest place to be. 
How about this one? This is this. I rank this one up there with loving our enemies and praying for them. How about that? We would not worry. Nobody here worries. I get that. So this is not applicable. But Philippians chapter four, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Is there anything that we are seeing around us that could cause us to be anxious? I could give you a dozen things right off the top of my head. Do not be anxious about everything, but in in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Does God want the church to be anxious? Are we? Again, this is for some other church, not us. How about for those in authority? First Timothy 2, 1 through 3. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in any way or in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Do you have any opinions about your leaders? John Newton, a converted slave trader, who we know as the hymnist that wrote Amazing Grace, also wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He he wrote this letter back in the 1600s, and it was called um, Blemishes in Christian Character. And he gives multiple um, portraits, if you will, of different types of Christians and the blemish that they have in their character. And one of these is Mr. Querulous. We don't use the word querulous very often, but for those of you that might be curious as to what it means, it means inclined to make whining or peevish complaints, characterized by or proceeding from a complaining, fretful attitude or disposition, a querulous tone. And in John Bunyan's brief picture of this querulous Christian, he says this, and I'll read you Sinclair Ferguson's comments about this Christian. He says, we've been thinking this week about a letter written by John Newton, whose hymns you probably know. In that letter, he's describing a series of people who in many ways seem to be exemplary Christians, but they all have one character blemish like a mark on a white shirt or a scratch on a new car. We've already met Mr. Austerus, the austere Christian, Mr. Humanus, the gregarious Christian, and John Newton also wants us to meet Mr. Querulous and perhaps Mrs. Querulous too. What is Mr. Querulous's problem? Well, here it is, Newton says, he wastes much of his precious time in declaiming against the management of public affairs. Now, this was written in the 1600s, by the way. Or to put it in contemporary terms, he's always expressing opinions about what government or authorities or educational systems or the church. He's always expressing opinions about what they are doing wrong. And he always seems to know what they should be doing right. And Newton has the courage to say, Mr. Querulous is just wasting his time and our time too. And the reason for it he gives is this. I love this. Mr. Querulous has no expert knowledge, 
nor any personally researched information in which he bases his judgment. He simply parrots things he picks up, up from talk shows on television or on the radio and the particular kind of literature he reads. And Newton says he is just wasting his time. I imagine if Mr. Querulous heard Newton say that, it would be something of a body blow to him. And it's not because John Newton was uninterested in the affairs of life. He's the man who actually discouraged William Wilberforce from leaving Parliament, that's the British one, and perhaps going into the ministry and told him to stay in politics because Newton really cared about the affairs of the world. He really was concerned about the good of the city. But here's what he says about Mr. Querulous. Our national concerns are no more, listen to this, our national concerns are no more affected by the remonstrances of querulous than the heavenly bodies are by the dispute of astronomers. Think about that. Our national concerns are no more affected by the remonstrances of querulous than the heavenly bodies are by the disputes of, astron of astronomers. That should go on Twitter, by the way. In other words... Mr. Querulous is much talk without any transformation. Of course, Newton is not saying these things are unimportant. As I say, he encouraged William Wilberforce to stay in politics and to continue his opposition to the slave trade. But I think if Newton were alive today, he would be worried about the equivalent of Mr. Querulous and perhaps especially in the ministry. Ministers whose tweets and blog sites and videos and programs rather suggest that they think the world is waiting to hear their opinions, although their opinions will do little to transform the world in which they live. Ow. We live in a world of opinion, don't we? And we all like to think our opinion matters. And Newton says something in many ways much more cutting. He says that Mr. Querulous is doing. What Mr. Querulous is doing is sinful conformity to the men of this world. And he adds, there are people enough to make a noise about political matters who know not how to employ their time to a better purpose. Our Lord's kingdom is not of this world. And most of these people may do their country much more essential service by pleading for it in prayer than by finding fault with things which they have no power to alter. I wonder how many websites you visit or tweets you see or programs you watch on YouTube or other channels where the mastermind is always pulling other people down and expressing his opinions. And here's the rub. The Mr. Querulouses of this world and within the Christian church spend a lot more time telling people what's wrong than they tend speaking about the beauties and the glories and the graces of the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe Newton points us to the litmus test. How loud am I in my opinion? How long am I in expressing those opinions? And how little am I upon my knees? That's a word in season, don't you think? Newton is not saying that we as Christians should not engage in our culture. In fact, the opposite. But what he's saying is that we bringing our opinions to bear on culture do nothing to transform the culture in which we live. What is going to make a difference? We go to the battlefield without the, the spiritual weaponry that, that God has given to us. 
We think our opinions are enough to sway the minds of sinful men. No. What is the Christian to do in, re- in regard to a corrupt government, in regard to a corrupt culture? We are to bring the truth of God's word to bear with prayer. That's what's missing. And I got a newsflash for you this morning. There is no political solution to the problems of our country. It takes a lot of audacity to think that God is going to bless our nation when we have the blood of 60 million children on our hands. There is no political solution. Our problem is spiritual. We, we the church, need to stop looking for the next election to be our salvation. And we need to pray. And we need to bring God's word to bear on our culture, not our opinions. But thus says the Lord. Lastly, third point, and I know I'm over, so please forgive me. But verse 5, the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashing, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What is this telling us? Prayer is God's ordained means to action. John is seeing the result of prayer. God is graciously revealing to the church that the prayers of the saints matter. This should dispel one of Satan's biggest lies. And I'm going to repeat this lie so you hear it out loud. But I guarantee you every one of us have heard this lie and listened to it. If God is sovereign, why is your prayer even relevant? You ever thought that? Why do I need to pray? Besides, you stink. You're not worthy. The scripture says, come boldly before the throne. But when you saint, you do that, you are presumptuous. Don't get too close to the throne. That's the lie that we are told by the enemy. Stay away. You have no right to come boldly before the throne of grace. You are being presumptuous. Don't do it, Christian. That's the lie that we are told constantly. Why should I pray? Well, first of all, he commands it. We're to obey him. Secondly, because our prayer in Christ pleases him. Common question that we see is, does prayer change an all-knowing, all-powerful God? And the answer is absolutely not. God does not need our prayer to change his mind about anything. What What does prayer do? Prayer changes things, not God. But guess what? The first thing it changes is me. Prayer changes things beginning with us. But know this, God not only ordains the end, he ordains the means. James chapter 5, verse 16, Therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. If God is sovereign, then why pray? Because it pleases the Father to act on the good-smelling intercession of the Son on our behalf. It pleases Him. Think about that. Church family, think about that. 
It pleases the Father to act on the intercessory work of the Son. Did God ordain that Joseph would end up second in command in Egypt? Did he ordain that? Absolutely. And you know what else he ordained? That when his brothers threw him in the well, the pit, and and Joseph is in that pit by himself in the dark, away from his family, away from his home. You know what Joseph did? I guarantee you, you know what he did? He prayed. You think the Lord answered Joseph's prayer in the pit? You think when Joseph did the right thing and ran away from Potiphar's wife and ended up in jail for several years, do you think he prayed while he was in prison? You see, God not only ordains the end, but he ordains the means. He had already determined beforehand that Joseph would be a ruler in Egypt and the purpose of it. And he gave Joseph this insight in Genesis 50. Do not fear, he tells his brethren, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about um, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph was given insight into the purpose of God, which was to save the lives of his family. We don't always get to see God's purposes, do we? But in the middle of that, the means to get there, God ordains prayer. Arthur, um, I promise you I'm almost done. Author Arthur Pink says this, commenting on Mark chapter 11, verse 24, what do, whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. He says this, expect God to do as you have asked. Well, how do we know that? How do we expect God to answer our prayer? What do we must do first? We must pray in his will. But expect God to do as you have asked, unless there is this expectancy, faith is not fully in exercise. It is this expecting from him, which honors and pleases God, and which always draws down from him answers of peace. There may be some difficulty, problem, trial looming ahead of you, which assumes the proportions of a mountain. Never mind that. Do not let it depress, discourage, or dismay you. Praise God, it stands written in the eternal word of truth. Verily I say unto you, if you have faith and doubt not, you shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and it shall be done. Notice carefully that it is not if thou doubt not and hast faith, But if you have faith, and then while you're awaiting God's answer, doubt not, but continue to expect the fulfillment of his promise. When you first get down on your knees, beg God in the name of Christ and for his own glory's sake to work in you by his spirit, that expectancy of faith, which will not take no from him, which reverently but confidently says, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. That is what honors God. That is what pleases him. That is what obtains answers from him. A friend at court. No doubt that expression is more or less familiar to the older readers, but it is almost dropped out of our use in this generation. It is denoted that one had a friend possessing influence with another in authority and using it on my behalf. How unspeakably blessed to know that the Christian has a friend at court. The court of heaven, 
a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. He has the ear of God, for on earth he declared, Thou hearest me always. Then make use of him, fellow saints. Bring your petitions to him and ask him to present them to his father and your father, accompanied by his own all-prevailing merits. And if they are for God's glory and thy real good, be fully assured they shall be granted. Thus Christ will be honored and your faith strengthened. As we close this morning, I want to leave you with Luke chapter 18. Jesus speaking to his disciples tells them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused and afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man yet because this widow keeps bothering me. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down for her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? But I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. The picture here in Revelation chapter 8 is that God will give justice to his elect speedily. The encouragement for you and I is our prayer matters to him. It is pleasing to him when brought before him in the merits, the savory smell of the Lord Jesus Christ. If anything you take away this morning, take that away. My prayer as a saint, as a child of God matters to the heavenly father, and I should do more of it. May we be encouraged to grow into mighty prayers. By the way, you cannot do this if you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. In Acts chapter 9, after Jesus meets Saul, soon to be Paul, and he strikes him down and converts him. And then he calls Ananias and says, Ananias, I want you to go meet Paul or Saul and minister to him. You remember what Ananias said? He said, Lord, do you you not know what this guy did? He did great evil to the people of God. And God's response to him is, he, he is praying. Go. Meaning he's alive. I hear him. You can't pray and be heard by the Heavenly Father if you are doing it outside of the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the pleasing mediator. We cannot please God apart from Christ, but in Christ, we please him. And he is pleased to hear us. And he is pleased when we claim his precious promises, when we pray in his revealed will. Are you resting this morning in the wrath-satisfying work of Christ or your own righteousness? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture that we see in Revelation 8, the reminder that we can come boldly and confidently before your throne, knowing that you hear us, knowing that the prayer of righteous men and women avails much. Lord, we, we know that we have no righteousness of our own to claim. 
the availing power of prayer is only done through the meritorious work of our Lord and Savior. We ask this morning that you would help us to dispel the lies that the wicked one brings against the church, to shut our mouths, both publicly and privately, but that we would come before your throne and intercede as you have called us to. We ask that you would come soon, Lord. And that in the meantime, you will continue to gather your sheep, your people, your elect, and that you would use us, the church, as your trumpet. We ask these things in your name. Amen.